Turn your pew Bibles to page 560, please. If you're using your pew Bibles, it's 560. Um, in any case, it's Psalm 51 and verses 1 to 19, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 and, and Psalm 130, the, the quintessence of asking forgiveness of sins. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your, again the language, abundant mercy, his mercy is more. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and yes. cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And just a little note on that. This, in the New Testament, when you have the Pharisee and the publican before the Lord, the, Pharisee, the publican does not say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. It's as if there's nobody else in the world and it's him before God, and it builds on this against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, sin attached to him from his mother's womb. You see how the scriptures teach? Life begins at the point of conception. And sin, sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you broke and rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, which is really what our worship is all about. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Remember Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and then, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Then, then is the time for sacrifice. First of all, your heart. And then turn, please, to Matthew chapter 6 and verses 5 through 12. Pew Bibles, page 964. And we'll add verses 14 through 14 and 15 to that. Verse, beginning at verse 5, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And when you pray, when you pray, 
You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the, at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in heaven, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And if you go down to verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Notice it does not say because you forgive others. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The grass withers and the flowers do fade. The word of our God stands forever, to which you say together, Amen and Hallelujah. Our God, what a glorious, not only a glorious hymn, but what a glorious way for us to prepare to learn the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts just as we forgive our debtors. And may the riches of the sufficiency of Christ when it comes to forgiveness now be opened up to us that we will be those who revel in that work of forgiveness that is infinitely beyond anything we can ever imagine. We ask in Christ's beautiful name, confirming that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen. 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 Please be seated. I think you'll want to turn to page 10. In fact, I know you will. Um, I'm always very burdened that you, you get what's going to be preached on. But in a very special way, I'm really concerned that you get what's dealt with today because there is so much misunderstanding of what is involved in forgiveness and some of the implications of it. So please, please, I encourage you to take notes. The, uh, the Lord's Prayer has been called by Sinclair Ferguson and, and by others, Life with Father. And, and that really is what it is. Je- Jesus has now condensed uh, the language of God. And in several cases prior to this and in this section, he refers to God as our Father. We begin this way, our Father in heaven. And so this really is life with Father. And as you have life with Father, Notice the progression. Let's keep this in mind, okay? He doesn't begin with, begin with, give us this day our daily bread. He begins with, hallowed be your name. Let your name be holy in all the world. And then it's, let your kingdom come, displacing the kingdom of ourselves. And then it's, let your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. If that pri- those priorities 
in these priority prayers, would grip us. That would transform our prayer lives in churches. It's not about us. Cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils, not unto us, but unto your name, O Lord, be glory. And you see that in the first three petitions of our prayer in life with our Father. And then the natural progression. And it is very interesting. He doesn't begin with, and forgive us our debts. Because I don't think most of us begin that way. We should, I guess, but we don't. You think in terms of your need. You think in terms of, of sickness and health and food and clothing and so on. And Jesus, Jesus understands that. Uh, we are people who live in the flesh. And so it's give us this day our daily bread. And then after the physical emphasis, the so-called spiritual emphasis as given in Matthew chapter 6, in which he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And, and that's the way that the, 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 the verb form of that is really important. Notice again, and forgive us our debts as, not because, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then in verse 14, and I love this, this fascinates me. There's another way this is done. It's almost like Jesus says, oh, and P.S., to this prayer, uh, I want to add in this place, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses, which is one of the questions that we'll deal with in here. And then it's fascinating that it's almost as if Jesus doesn't want us to lose this because later in Matthew, he gives a lengthy parable in which he really bores into our hearts what all of this means. So clearly, this is a very, very significant petition in the Lord's Prayer, even though it's number five. Now, next to Christ. Nothing is second to Christ. I had to mention to the men yesterday, as much as I appreciate Kent Hughes' book on the disciplines of a godly man, he says, in the Christian life, discipline is everything. No, it's not. In the Christian life, Christ is everything. Discipline flows from it, okay? But, but uh, in, in, next to Christ, the most important word in the vocabulary of true religion is forgiveness. Now, I want you to really get this. There is no other religion in the world that promises and can give forgiveness. None. Whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, materialism, communism, Confucianism, whatever it would be, there is no way your sins can be forgiven on those world views. And we're going to come back to why that's so important in just a little bit, okay? Now, um, people raise the question, well, why, do we, why, why do we say forgive us our debts rather than forgive us our trespasses? And there's a very interesting answer to that that I'm not going to go into. It has to do with how the, the Bible was translated, um, either from the Latin or from the from, uh, Wycliffe's translation into English. And I don't want to get into all that. The interesting thing is that the word here is debts. Okay, Forgive us our debts just as we have forgiven our debtors. Luke's version is, forgive us our sins, and, and, and then he says, just as we have become indebted to others. So, so the language of debt really is the, the dominant word that's here. Now, 
This is another area, brothers and sisters, where we've lost the impact of the meaning of a word. Um, with all of our cultural sins, and we've got loads of them, do you realize that debt is a big one? The Bible says the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And you're to owe no man anything save to love one another. And when you hear of debt forgiveness for student loans, that's basically just trying to erase something that is really owed, you have a travesty of the meaning of forgiveness. And when you have a national debt of over $34 trillion, don't you let any economist tell you that doesn't make any difference. That makes a huge difference because somebody is owed that money. But there's been, a, a, and, and not to mention the fact of, of pernicious things in our culture, do you realize that credit card debt is the highest it has ever been in our country? And that always tempers the way we look at the economy uh, people are spending money they don't have to try to build an economy that's got a lot of gas in it. Now, now, why do I say all that? We don't appreciate historically how serious debt is. In From the ancient times, and really right up until the early part of the 1800s, by and large, debt was treated as very serious crime. Why? Because if you don't pay someone that you owe money to, you've stolen from them, and they're hindered. And as a result, in various ways, and as a fascinating development of this historically, you had what we called later debtors' prisons. So if you went in debt and you could not pay to your creditor what you had, you went to a place where, you were, where there was forced labor, where what you earned went to the person that you owed the money to until you paid it. And that brought hardship, not only to the person in debtor's prison, but it brought hardship to the whole family and friends. Now, they would, family and friends would help out with this, but they were made, they were made to realize, you pay this debt. And in the debates in Rome and Greece and in other areas, creditors, creditors made the point very powerfully, if those who owe us money don't pay us, we can't do the work we're called to do. Now, that's, that's full of lessons for today. But that's how serious this is. And when we read, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, really, you want to go to prison for your credit card debt? That's, that's the kind of thing that was communicated, and, and you'll see this when Jesus gives the PPS to this petition a, a little bit later. Okay, so here's what we're going to do today. Um, number one, I've got four things to do. I want to give you the grand picture of forgiveness, both by the words of the Old and New Testaments and by an Old Testament illustration. I want to paint the picture by words of the grand picture of forgiveness, and then, and then illustrate it by way of a old, beautiful Old Testament illustration. And then second, the grand petition. The petition itself, we're going to break it down as to what it is. Number three, I want to answer some of your questions. And I guarantee you, 
some of these things that you hear will jar you because it's not common evangelical parlance or religious parlance, okay? But I want to answer some objections. Very important. And then number four, how Jesus drives this point home. Jesus, Jesus is the consummate preacher. And again, it's very interesting. He, he gives this petition, number five, in priority prayers, but he doesn't leave it. He develops it in verses 14 and 15. And it's almost as if Jesus, when he's speaking a little bit later, says, oh, uh, I really want to impress upon you what I said some time back. Okay, so that's my reading into it. But that's, that's the idea that's here, how Jesus drove the point home. Brothers and sisters, friends, how I wish I could impress this up upon everyone that I meet. Your greatest need is Christ. Amen. You're lost, he's the way. You don't know what truth is, he's the truth. You're dead and trespasses and sins by nature. Your greatest need is Christ. Your greatest need in Christ is forgiveness of sins. And the only place there is forgiveness of sins, yes, the only place there's forgiveness of sins is in the gospel. Well, what about my spirituality? There's no forgiveness of sins there. What about my good works? No, there's no forgiveness of sins there. What about, what about my high hopes? No, there's no forgiveness of sins there either. But I'm a Buddhist. No forgiveness of sins there. Well, I'm a materialist. I don't believe in sin. It doesn't make any difference whether you believe it or not. Your own conscience bears witness to sin, and there's no forgiveness in materialism. There's no forgiveness anyplace else. Okay, now, let's get into the first point. The grand picture of forgiveness by words and by an Old Testament illustration, okay? The grand picture of forgiveness by words and by Old Testament illustration. When Margaret and I go to Rockport, Massachusetts, not Rockport, Maine, although that's a beautiful place too, but Rockport, Massachusetts, it's, a, it's an art community. And uh, Margaret and I enjoy uh, going from store to store and, and seeing the, uh, the, the different pieces of artwork. And I'm fascinated with the skies that are, that are usually done by, by watercolor. Uh, and, and, you know, that makes sense. If you're dealing with what's water up in the sky, you do it with watercolor. And it's not done with just one brush of water. There's usually several very light colors that are brushed one over another to give a, a deeper textured effect so you really look like you're looking at a sky. And, and let me do that with the words, okay? Paint a brush, we're gonna brush the sky, so to speak, with, with the words. I won't give you the, other than one case, I won't give you the Hebrew and the Greek words. You don't need to know them. But, but in the Old Testament, there are three words that are used in various ways for the meaning of forgiveness, for forgiveness. And so think of brushing this canvas with water, with these light colors, and, and here's the three colors you're brushing with from the Old Testament. What does forgiveness mean? Number one, it means to cover, which is fitting for a canvas, right? To cover. Number two, to take away. Forgiveness is to take away. And number three, third Hebrew word is to pardon. And so we're brushing the canvas with these watercolors to cover 
to take away and to pardon. And then there's four other brush colors. These are words from, from the New Testament. Uh, what does forgiveness mean? It's to put away. To put away. Number two, to not regard something against another. To not regard something as against another. We're brushing the sky, okay? Number three, I love the way Pastor Mallon uses this word. It, it means to grace with, or as he puts it, to graceify, uh, to, to, to transform by unmerited favor. Okay, that's another word used for forgiveness. But the most common one in the New Testament, aphesis, means to send away, to send away from you. Okay, now, now if you brush that canvas with those seven colors. Here's what's amazing. At the end, what you have is the most beautiful white that you could ever have on a canvas, even, even whiter than the canvas itself. That's how the wonder of all of these words for forgiveness on, on the campus, on the, on the canvas. Now, especially with that word to send away, why? Why is this the word, it is the most common word used for forgiveness in the New Testament? Well, in, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 16, don't, don't turn there, but you may want to read it this afternoon so you get the big picture. It is Yom Kippur. It is the day, Yom, Yom is Hebrew word for day, uh, Kippur, to cover, okay, that's one of the words for forgiveness, the day, the day of atonement, or the day of forgiveness, or the day of covering. It is the high point, really, uh, of the Old Testament Jewish calendar. And, and there's, there's really a number of things that go on in that day. The beginning and the end are the cleansing of the priests in that day, uh, because the high priest has got going to go in the most holy place. And if he is not perfectly cleansed, the way God called for in his word, he's dead. That's pretty serious. So you, so you have the, the priests who have to be dressed and cleansed properly. And then there's the sacrifices, particularly with the bull, bulls and with the goats. Okay? And, and you have those sacrifices in which the blood is shed according to the word of God. The blood is sprinkled on the, 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 the mercy seat, which is the seat of forgiveness, inside the most holy place. You have the, the tabernacle with the outer court, and then you have the, the holy place, and then you have the most holy place with a curtain in front of it, and the high priest could only go there once a year and not without blood. Okay, so there's this, the, the atonement for sins. And, and you'd think that would be it. Right, the, 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 the symbolic, which is what it was, a shadowy, symbolic way by which sins are forgiven. But that wasn't it. Because you still have the remembrance of sin in the camp of the Lord's people. That, that tabernacle was with the people. So there was something else in the Day of Atonement. You took a goat called a scapegoat. At least we call it that. And the priest would, would put, he, the priest has represented the people, the priest has offered up the atonement, and, and the priest takes his hands with which he has offered up blood for the forgiveness of sins. He lays them on the head of the goat as a symbolic way of transferring 
the sins, even the forgiven sins of the people to the goat. And the goat is made to run away in the wilderness, not to come back among the Lord's people. And that that was done every year showed the Israelites, if I could put it this way, it wasn't enough to just cover the sins. Those sins had to literally be taken away. That's the meaning of the main Greek term that's used for forgiveness, to send away. It had to be sent away, no longer to be held against the Lord's people. And, and every year that was done, cementing in people's minds the meaning of forgiveness. Now, brothers and sisters, that blood wouldn't take away sins. How do you know? It had to be offered up every year. If it really took away sins, why do you need to offer it up every year? Christ comes into the world. He's not only the Lamb of God. What does a goat symbolize at the last day? Jesus puts the sheep and the goats. Goats represent sinners. And Jesus is not only the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world as the covering of the mercy seat covered the sins. He is also, if you will, the great scapegoat. And when, when Jesus is killed and put in the ground and then raised from the dead as a completely perfected one, completely glorified one, but particularly when he's put in the ground as the one who's offered up a sacrifice for sins. It's the statement that your sins are taken away from you in the great scapegoat in Christ. And brothers and sisters, you've got to have both of those. You have to have not only an atonement for sins, but some way that you know what the Bible says when it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. And I'm going to say it again. That's your greatest need. And there's no other religion, no other place in the world where you can get that. Now that's why, why John, when John speaks about Christ's work, not only does Paul, don't you love the language when Paul says, Colossians 1, he says, we're transferred, translated from the kingdom of darkness unto the kingdom of the Son of his love, Jesus Christ, in whom we have forgive, the forgiveness of sins. You're not in the camp where sin is held against you. It's taken away and you're taken away from it. And when John says in what is absolutely the most remarkable statement about the gospel, perhaps next to he became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Right next to that in significance, John says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin. Now think about that. You just have your sin. God's justice is not going to forgive you. It's going to damn you. But you confess your sins. You come to Christ. God is not only faithful to what his son has done on the cross, he's just to forgive your sins. Why? There's no double indemnity. I come to Christ with my sins. He has borne them. I will not be judged for them. It's an absolutely remarkable statement. Why do I say this? Ah, all the religions are the same. Yeah, we're all at the base of the mountain. Well, no, they're not. 
And you have to lovingly say in your worldview, how do you get forgiveness of sins? All right. Anyway, okay, so, so there's, the, there's the picture, and then there's the, the illustration that is so beautiful in the Old Testament. Now, the grand petition, now we should look at the petition itself, and it's in verse, in verse 12 of uh, Matthew 6. And forgive us, and yes, the word is debts. Remember what debts do. Debts, debts to, that's a really scary word in Jesus' day. If I can't pay my debts, I go to prison, okay? And forgive us our debts, not because, but as we also have forgiven our debtors. Yes, you've got to be willing to forgive, but you have actually forgiven your debtors. And that's a reflection of the way God has actually forgiven you. Now, this is the grand petition. What does it teach? Sin, brothers and sisters, is your and our fundamental spiritual problem. That's Luke's language. Forgive us our sins, which are debts, and Scripture interprets Scripture. Yes, not, not lack of education. This is, our, this is our counterfeit religion in our culture. Get enough of the right education and you'll be fine. No, you won't. Some of the people in prison are some of the most educated people you'll ever meet. Education hasn't helped them because it's a heart problem. Economics are not going to improve everybody's lot. Treating people so they're not treated as victims. Okay, you want to treat people respectfully. That's not going to forgive sins. That's not their basic problem. Sin is the basic fundamental spiritual problem. And, and that's why the writers of the past... See, in our culture, we don't want to talk about sin. <laughs> we don't want to talk about that too much because, you know, we've got to fill this building up and pay our bills. You talk about sin too much, people aren't going to come. Excuse me. Then you eliminate the meaning of the cross. The cross is about God's dealing with sin. But older writers have used some of the most vivid, memorable language to describe sin. It is the plague of of plagues, and it is. Leprosy is a picture of what sin does. It is the evil of evils. Why? Because it's the source of all other evils that come into the world through human agency. Sin has been called, I wrote down, so it's been called the rape of God's mercy. Whoa. God is merciful to you, and you violate him by your own sin. It is a violation of God's law. Now, that, uh, that's another thing in our culture. Given our view of the breaking of the law today, in which people can literally get away with murder, they don't think that much about that. Oh, God is a just judge. And sin is a violation of the law. Sin is... Sin is a challenge. It is, it is a, a rebellion against the goodness of God. God's goodness forbears with you, and you challenge that and rebel against that. Sin tests God's patience. Don't you know that the long-suffering of God is salvation. You want something that will keep you up if you are outside of Christ. Mm -hmm. 
my very breath that is in rebellion against God tests his patience with me. And if God, without any loss of self-control, should stop his patience to me, in the middle of the night as I'm agonizing over this, my heart stops and I'm dead and I'm in hell. Now, now, brothers and sisters, this is the reality of what sin is. And you could go on and on and on and on and on and on and deal with it. Sin is your and our fundamental spiritual problem. Now, why debts? Debts emphasizes the seriousness of the penalty. You, 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 are a, you get some sense of the fact that from conception, through my whole life, and all of my thoughts and my words and my deeds, I've offended God, and those are debts. I owe him for that. You talk about debtor's prison now, a little bit later. You'll see how Jesus drills this in to people. What a debt that I owe, and I can't pay this. Why? Because I'm a sinner. Debtors, debtors can't pay their own debts because even, even because of their sin, when they're, when they're serving, sin is attached to it. And so that's why the word debts is so painfully appropriate to all of this. So debts emphasize the seriousness of the penalty, but the petition. I mean, why why would our Father include in this prayer the prayer, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors? Why would he include it if he's not going to forgive? God doesn't waste words. And so the petition emphasizes not not only the possibility of forgiveness, you wouldn't be asked to ask it if it wasn't possible, but God's willingness to forgive. And, And brothers and sisters, I don't think Reformed people are always as strong on that as they ought to be. There's this kind of default in here. Okay, God's willing to forgive if they're elect. But God's not just generally willing to forgive. He certainly is. God says in in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of my elect? That's not what he says. And he doesn't say, have I any pleasure in the death of my professed people? He says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord, that's his covenant name, his name of love. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Do you believe that? That's what you say to everybody. Well, I don't know if they're elect. That's God's business, not yours. God's desire is that you turn from your wicked way because that's not only the only way you're going to have forgiveness, it's the only way you live. And, and, and the Apostle Paul has this spirit when he, goes to, when he goes to the Athenians. And he says in Acts 17, In, pa- in times gone by, 
God worked so that people would grope for him, if perhaps they might find him. People by nature grope for God, but now he's given a son. And, and, and because of the son who's coming, who will judge the world, he says, God now, now commands all people everywhere to repent. He doesn't just say his elect. Everybody. Everybody turn from sin and turn to Christ. So, so the petition, it's the fact that it's here, shows that, that God is not, only, is not only the possibility forgiveness, but his willingness to forgive. And God's willingness to forgive is infinitely greater than your willingness to seek it. You see this over and over again. It's one of the difficulties in pastoral ministry. People come, and, and, and is it genuine repentance, the sorrow that's according to God or the sorrow that's according to the world? And again, we don't know the heart, and, and even a little genuine repentance is there, but, but is it genuine repentance? And what happens is this. You and I can become so embarrassed about our sins and our failings that we really don't own up to them the way we should and you're not forgiven you and I are expected to be as honest as by grace we can be doesn't mean you have to tell everybody your failings tell God and when you sin against other people you need to ask their forgiveness there we'll come to that but you do real heart searching folks yeah, but it's so difficult. Sure it is. So is the cross. But you do that heart searching and go as best as you can to the depths of your own sin. God's more willing to forgive you than you are to confess. That's how great he is. That's why his mercy is more. One of the Puritan writers, Richard Sibbs, who wrote the classic for pastors and others, the bruised reed and the smoking flax, Richard Sibbs said, there is more Mercy in Christ than sin in us. Wow. And, and that's why, see, that's why, brothers and sisters, don't hold back. Repentance is called the vomit of the soul. Let it out and bring it before the Lord. And there is forgiveness with him that he might be reverenced. Okay? So, so that's, that's basically the, the petition that's there. And of course, what's the gospel? What's the blessing? Oh, it's not your own merit. It's God's mercy. And it's not your own personal power to do better. Come on. Not your personal power. It's divine pity and passion and, and, his, and, and his pardon. It, dealing with your sin, folks, it, it's not cruelty. The cruelty is to Christ on the cross. Your cruelty to yourself is not going to forgive your sins. It's not cruelty, but it's kindness and compassion. You look to God that way. And it's not injustice. God, God will just overlook my sin. Then God's not just. Period. And you don't want to live in a world without a just God. It's not injustice. It's called Christ and the cross. Again, you confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Okay? And, and, and brothers and sisters, being forgiven 
and forgiving others. That's meant to be your lifeblood in Christ. The blood that pumps through your spiritual veins from the new heart that the Lord gives you is the blood of forgiveness. I'm, I'm forgiven by God, and also I forgive others. And that's going to bring us to the third part. Answering some questions. And here's the first one, and I know this is going to stun you. You need to forgive everyone. He murdered my brother, but I've forgiven him. He was unfaithful to me, but I have forgiven him. He stole from me, but I have forgiven him. And that sounds wonderful, but my question is always, did he ask? Brothers and sisters, you don't forgive people until they repent and ask. And many texts teach this, but especially Luke 17 and verses 3 and 4. Luke 17, I mean, let how clear this is. And I'll give you the reason for this in a moment. But Luke 17 and verses 3 and 4, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, that doesn't mean all the time. We'll come to that in a moment. And if he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, and he turns to you saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, why is this? Forgiveness, brothers and sisters, is a legal transaction. It is at the cross. Christ satisfies the law of God perfectly so that you can be forgiven. And forgiveness in this case, when someone has sinned against you, I'll put it this way, as a criminal, it's a legal transaction in which the person says, will you forgive me? And you have a requirement to ask to grant forgiveness. Now, if there's a question about the level of repentance, that's a whole other issue. At least for our purposes here, you grant forgiveness to them. That's what Jesus says. And when you grant forgiveness, this is what it means. Forgiveness, my thumb, okay? It means I'm not going to bring this up to you, to the Lord, to myself, or to anybody else. Unless it's necessary in a counseling session or something like that. But you don't fish in those waters. There's a transaction that is completed when you grant forgiveness. And if you simply say of someone who's unrepentant, I forgive him, there's no legal transaction there. Now, you are never, now, only a couple, you always got to be willing to forgive. You always have to be willing to forgive others. And you always must be long suffering toward others and gracious toward others. But forgiveness is a legal transaction. And don't bastardize the word, okay, by, by speaking just in, in that way. And, and I, if I'm passionate about this, I've been a pastor, folks, for 45 years. And there's not a counseling session that goes by without having to deal with these kinds of issues. Why biblical counseling is so important. Okay, now connected with this, you've got to forgive and forget. 
You won't. That's inhuman to say that. You've been sinned against grievously. You are asked to forgive a person. You grant forgiveness. You don't fish in those waters again. You're not going to forget that. That's going to be part of, quite frankly, what makes you appreciate forgiveness more. But it's part of the hurts that come in life. Now, what this means is that you, now people say, well, God forgets our sins. I don't know that God forgets anything, but he doesn't hold these sins against us is the idea. You don't hold the sins against the other person. And let me tell you what this comes down to. You're in a counseling session, and the pastor says, if you're a good pastor, he's going to do it. So wait a minute. So you, you yelled at your wife. I did. I'm sorry for that. That's not enough. You tell me you're sorry for what you did. You're giving a commentary on the fact that God made you in his image and your conscience bothers you. It does. You need to ask your wife to forgive you. I don't want to do it. You are to do it. See, now you say it lovingly. You are to do it because you've sinned against your wife. And then there's remorse. And the man says, dear, Pastor Shish goes right. I sinned against you. I was angry with you. Would you forgive me? She says, yes. They go home. At night, they go to bed. And the wife sits up in bed and says, you know how you got mad at me the other day? Hello? Guess who just sinned? You don't bring those things up against the person. Not the person got anger issues. Deal with the anger issues. But folks, that's what God does to us. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. doesn't say he forgets them. He doesn't hold them against us, okay? So that's, that's number one. Number two, isn't love to cover a multitude of sins? And the answer is yes. Thank God for that. My, if I, you know me well enough to know that I am far from perfect. If you pick me up on every peccadillo, every little failing, forget it. I would be the most miserable person in the world because I know myself those failings. So if, it's, if I could put it this way, if it's a little ungodly hiccup, and you don't hear those hiccups very often. Let love cover a multitude of transgressions. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's spiritual halitosis, and there's this constant breathing out of what's sin, there you have to say, uh, pastor, whoever it is, I'm really concerned about this pattern that is not in accord with the Word of God. So you either cover, love covers, a multitude of transgressions, or you confront, and there's no middle ground in all of that, okay? And that now you confront, and the person says, you're right. I've, mouth gate, right? <laughs> I've, I've sinned in these ways, and, and, and you're right, and, and I do. I've, I've got to stop that, and, and please forgive me. And, and the person might say, well, you need to ask. I mean, I've had this happen as a pastor. They, they, they didn't happen a whole lot, but the elder said, Bill, you, and the way you've preached, you... That, that was not the way a man's to preach to a congregation. You need to ask the congregation's forgiveness. And at least two occasions, maybe more, and probably should have been more, I had to do that. And once somebody came to me and said, Pastor Shishko, 
Was that hard for you to ask for forgiveness of the congregation? I said, no, that wasn't hard. What's hard is that I don't do it again. See, that, but that's the point, okay? You, you, you uh, um, let love cover a multitude of transgressions. Here's another question. Well, but pastor, wait a minute. I'm justified. You tell me that, that my sins are pardoned. The penalty of my sins is taken away, past, present, and future. I've come to Christ. I'm declared righteous. Why, so why do I need to ask forgiveness? And this is basically every day. Give us this day, our daily bread. And so this is a daily prayer, not prayed more often. Why do I need to ask for forgiveness? Okay, very big difference, okay? By nature, you and I are criminals. By nature, you and I are guilty. By nature, you and I before God are in a court. You can't get away from that. And God, the just judge, says to us by nature... These are the ways in thought, word, and deed you've fallen. You're guilty. You're going to be condemned. Justification says, Lord, I, I turn away from my sin, and I have an advocate, my lawyer, Jesus Christ the righteous, and, and he paid the punishment for my sin, and he was perfectly obedient for me, and I don't rest in myself. It's not merit, it's mercy, but there's mercy in Christ. And the Father says, I forgive you. I'm faithful and just to forgive you your sins. Then the father takes you into, or the judge takes you into his living room, and he becomes your father in the gospel. You're adopted in Christ. Now you're still going to sin. But there's a difference between the sin of my children against me and the sin of a criminal against me. You've heard me use this illustration in my bay window that I had in my study in Melbourne. Huge window. Well, somebody from the outside is walking on the street and hurls a rock into the window and smashes it. I'm going to call the police. I want to be merciful and gracious. He broke the window. That needs to be paid for. You call the police. He's a criminal. One of my sons did it. He'd get a good spanking, but I wouldn't call the police. He's my son. And, and, and so when Jesus says, to the disciple, and the disciple says, Lord, I need to be washed again. He says, no, 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 you're washed, you're cleansed, but you've got to have your feet washed. You get, they get dirty going through life. Okay, so, so that's the kind of thing that you are praying for every day as a forgiven child of God. And then the last one is this. Doesn't this teach that our forgiveness of others is the ground of our forgiveness. Here you go. Mr. Works will intrude itself in here, and you begin to vex yourself and saying, uh, wow, the, 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 I've got to forgive others because that's the basis on which God will forgive me. That's not what the text says. And forgive us our debts, not because we have forgiven our debtors, but as we forgive our debtors. Their life, your bloodstream as a Christian is not only being forgiven, but that puts the oxygen of forgiveness of others into your blood. And if there's none of that oxygen of forgiveness of others, then you haven't been forgiven of God. And that's when you go down to verse 14. Notice how carefully the Holy Spirit speaks of these things for for not because you forgive others if you forgive others their trespasses 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. He sees that that's the habit of your life, forgiving, being forgiven and forgiving others, just forgiving others, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's saying that, that if you're showing that you're a forgiven sinner by the way you deal with others. Now, that's... See, see, good works, folks, they're not the root of your salvation. They're the fruit of your salvation. And it's logical. I think of how gracious God has been to me. And that's why you do heart work, right? How can I be merciless to other people? It, it, it doesn't fit if you really have experienced God's grace. Now, that's why in the kingdom of God, there's no place for cold-hearted, stubborn, obstinate, proud, malicious people. How can you be that way toward others when God is so gracious toward you? And that's, that's basically the point that Jesus is getting at in here. Now, with that in mind, how Jesus drove that point home. Turn to Matthew chapter 18 and verses 21 to 25. And I know the time is getting away from us here, but I, I really want you to, I want this to be drilled into you, okay, as it has been to me. And again, this is fascinating. Jesus says, okay, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Oh, and P.S. to the Lord's Prayer. Remember, you don't forgive your brothers, then basically you're showing that you don't know what forgiveness is. And then he goes to this point, and he says, oh, let me tell you a bigger story about exactly what I was getting at in the Lord's Prayer. So Peter comes up and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. And, and brothers and sisters, that ought to be a statement to us that our best obedience in this life is full of a lot of disobedience. If you have to forgive somebody 70 times, seven times in a day, that means sin is a lot more common than you want to make it to be. All right, anyway, so then Jesus drills this in. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, which is a kingdom of forgiveness, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to, and of course the king represents Christ, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now there's a lot of debate about what a talent meant and how it fits in our culture today. Basically, a talent was about 20 years worth of wages. That's the best we could figure from that. Well, you figure 20 years worth of wages by 10,000, I can't even do the math for that. But that's debtor's prison for, for, for many, 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 many lifetimes. And so he comes to the king, and, and he owes him all this. And since he could, couldn't, he wasn't able to pay. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, see? And all that he had and payment to be made. That's debtor's prison. So the servant fell on his knees, begging him, 
have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That's us. Amen. You get it? We come before Christ and we say, Lord, my life, when I'm honest with my life, and I must be, if sin is debt, I'm going to owe you for an eternity. And out of pity because of the cross, Jesus says, I forgive you. All right? so, so that's us. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii is basically a day's wage. About a hundred, a hundred days' wages. And seizing him. See? This is this is the, the firmness and the and the and the, the, the strictness with which we're supposed to deal with others, right? He began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. And he was supposed to do it. He was supposed to pay what he owed. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went, here's debtor's prison, and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master, who was Christ, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. He didn't say to him, I'm so thankful that you got a really high view of the law. He said, you're wicked because you don't have a high view of mercy. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And Jesus will do that for you. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? See, if the blood if the blood of, of forgiveness is really pumping through his veins, that oxygenated blood will inevitably enliven forgiveness of others. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which means never. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Not because, but you know the great evidence that you're a Christian? You are forgiven, willing to forgive others, and you do forgive others when they come to you. And unless you want to invite debtor's prison for eternity, for your debts, you better have the oxygen of forgiveness of sins pumping through your veins from a new heart. Not because you forgive others, but if you really know what forgiveness is, you will forgive others. That's the seriousness, folks, of the way the Word of God speaks. And let's not trim it down. See, Jesus, the words about Aslan, Jesus is... is uh, not a safe lion, but he's good. And that good lion says, when you pray, you pray, forgive us our debts.
and I will, but demonstrate it always, 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 by having a forgiving spirit toward all and forgiving freely those who ask why. Because you know what that forgiveness is. Isn't the gospel beautiful in what it does? Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for these priceless reminders of priceless grace that flow from a priceless gospel that come from a priceless Christ. And our Lord, we are so thankful for the Holy Spirit and for the whole way the Holy Spirit did not in any sense allow us to think that it's because we forgive others that we're forgiven. Otherwise, we're going to be tormented. But Lord, may our willingness to forgive others, may our actual forgiveness of others, may the graceifying that we give to others, that's a meaning of forgiveness, may all of those things show that we are new creation in which from new hearts the blood of forgiveness and being willing to forgive flows through our veins. Make us that kind of Christ-like Christian Amen.